Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five-minute food fact series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host, a lawyer turned nutritionist with a deep curiosity about well-being. I'm learning as much as I can about living a healthy, active and fulfilling life and sharing what I learn with you on this podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I will mention that, although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions, and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I am here with Dr. Zali Yeager, Associate Professor in Health and Physical Education at Victoria University in Melbourne. She's also an educator and researcher. Zali is passionate about improving health and well-being for people of all ages, particularly in the area of body image, mental health and well-being. Zali has experience in intervention and evaluation research with children adolescents and adults and today we are going to talk about body image particularly in relation to adolescents. Hi Zali and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast. Thank Um, you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So Zali your bachelor's degree was in education in health and physical education and then you went on to do a PhD in health education. So what was it that sparked your interest in health and physical education? Well, I, you know, as a teenager, as a female adolescent, um, experienced what many people experience, which is a whole lot of pressure to change the bodies that we have. Um, Some of my first memories of my body were that it was too large and it was bigger than other people's. And that's going right back to childhood. So throughout adolescence, I you know, did what a lot of people do and start a kind of um, innocuous diet that Mm. turns into something more Um, and never quite um, was diagnosed with an eating disorder and never quite was treated or anything. Um, But I sort of found my own way to um, the kind of therapeutic pathway, I guess, um, by through studying. And my PhD was actually about the fact that a lot of people who have these issues are then drawn to food and exercise related careers. So that's what really drew me to health and and PE. But also um, the kind of other factor there was was that um, I was a really uncoordinated child and I, I got to high school managing to learn really, you know, not how to throw a catch very well. <laughs> and, um, you know, once I got to university and or in that decision stage, I just thought, well, surely I, I could do better than this. You know, this, this, isn't a, this isn't good enough that kids can just kind of, um, you know, be, be a very compliant, good student, but just stand around on the sidelines and not yeah. really volunteer to do much in a PE class and, and get through without having that kind of physical literacy. Oh, that's very interesting. Do you think it's changed now? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> no, oh, that, that is a shame. At school level, the kids that are coordinated and very good at that, they tend to take centre stage in, in the PE type classes and often they're more confident, of course, so they're the ones putting their hands up. and mm. Yeah, and the class, I mean, 
as a teacher now I have a very different perspective and um, in order for the classes to work it kind of requires people to have that confidence and the competence to be able to step forward Mm. so I can see exactly how and why this happens Um, and you know it's not so simple as as just having you know better quality PE in primary school or whatever but um, I do still think that there's a lot of kids that fly under the radar in, in PE. Yeah, yeah. It's interestingly, my children are at a co-ed school and I can't remember which year level, it's certainly in secondary school, they can elect whether they do their PE classes in um, a co-ed group or for the girls at least in an all-girls group and I think that might take away some of the pressure. I I imagine that's why they have that choice. Yeah, I do kind of support that really. Um, there's no hard data either way. It would be just too hard to measure, but um, yeah. I do support it. And on a number of topics and in a number of different things that um, that you're trying to teach, it would be advantageous just to have a girls' group. Yeah, yeah, there's less pressure, I think. Um, so tell us about your PhD. What did you uh, look at there? Yeah, so I was um, looking at whether university students in health and um, health and food and exercise related kind of um, degrees had more of a vulnerability towards um, body image and eating and exercise issues and found that they did. And in particular, um, one of the interesting things was that um, the male people in food and exercise related degrees were really doing a lot of physical activity um, to the point where it could be sort of considered an exercise disorder. So that could be how that kind of plays out in males and that kind of sparked um, I guess my interest in male body image um, that I've continued on and then the second part of the PhD was really about um, how can we try to um, recognize that people might go into these careers for personal and professional reasons and embed some of that into the initial training because it's really um, a case of modeling the sorts of approaches that we want those teachers or counselors or nutritionists to be doing with their clients and students and everything Mm -hmm. but just doing it on themselves first and so that experiential learning model I think um, is quite appropriate and and quite a good idea in those degrees because of um, the fact that um, we might have people in there who have a personal um, background as well. And I'm sure you could say the same about a nutrition or dietetics degree too that I mean, I guess people who are drawn to that are, first of all, very interested in it and it could come from a personal experience. Let's talk about body image. And you mentioned your interest in boys and their body images. And I think you're doing a project called the 3D Project, which aims to improve mental and physical health of adolescent boys. And I very much want to come back to that. Mm -hmm. But first of all, I think I'd like to go back to basics a bit Um, Your expertise lies in the promotion of positive body image and the prevention of eating disorders. And so if we dive into that a bit, especially as it relates to adolescence, I think a good place to start would be when you talk about body image in your professional capacity, what does it refer to? Yeah, it's a really good place to start because so many people have a misconception about what body image means and they think that it means what they physically look like Mm -hmm. and so I'll meet you know someone at a barbecue and and say I do body image research and 
and you know this middle-aged man will go oh I could do with a bit of your help like uh. <laughs> kind of laughing patting their beer belly kind of thing and I'm like oh well it's I, I think you've got the wrong idea but let's not get into it yeah. um so the body image actually refers to the thoughts and feelings that we have about the way that we look so you could look you know you could be in a small body you could be in a larger body in between short tall and everyone could have a different type of body image um, as the field has progressed as I've been in it we've sort of seen this passing out of negative body image or body dissatisfaction being a kind of distinct and separate construct to mm-hmm. positive body image and body appreciation um, and so we've now got a lot of work happening to try and figure out relationships between different um, variables and different kind of mental and physical health outcomes in relation to whether people have a more positive or a more negative um, thoughts and feelings about their body. Right. It sounds like it could be a really complex area with lots and lots of factors. What does it mean then to have a negative body image? How does that manifest or what are the kind of thoughts and feelings around that? There are lots of different ways of measuring this and lots mm-hmm. of different um, parts that are involved, but um, it can be dissatisfaction with certain body parts. Um, and so sort of thinking about each individual part right. and and the level of satisfaction or dissatisfaction with that individual part. It can be about um, evaluation of the whole um, and then it can be about attitudes towards um, how important it is that your body looks a certain way. Yeah, what we often see, though, is that it, it does come back down to weight and shape, particularly for women, um, yeah. and that, you know, it's really around body size and weight. Yeah, it's so tricky for women. One of the reasons I think I ended up studying nutrition was because I tried every single diet known to humankind. <laughs> and I look back now and I actually think it's quite sad because I probably didn't need to, but anyway. So then what are some of the factors that influence body image in adolescence? We typically talk about um, there being genetic factors, which are things um, that we really can't change. Mm. Um, And the main one is then whether you're male or female as a risk factor. Um, We talk about your body size um, in terms of, you know, because there's nothing else a BMI because BMI is one of the strongest predictors of body dissatisfaction. Um, And then we talk about, particularly for adolescents, pubertal timing being really important predictor um, and the directions of that um, relationship are different for boys and girls. But the, the part that I'm more interested in because there's the capacity to change it through intervention really um, is the biopsychosocial influences uh, although the psychosocial parts of the um, biopsychosocial model yeah. um, which would be the kind of psychological factors which are individual to each person um, and that might be you know levels of perfectionism levels of internalization of the thin ideal the extent to which you compare yourself and your body to other people all of those things are things that we have as inbuilt traits and some people have sort of are on a continuum of high to low on all of those things. Um, and if it's sort of aligned in certain ways, then we find those people who have, you know, more likely to compare themselves to other people who have a high level of perfectionism and who um, strongly internalise that idea of the thin ideal might be more likely to have a negative body image and to move through um, to an eating disorder. So those would be the psychological things. And then the social things we find peers are the strongest influence. Yeah. 
um, on adolescence and they really take over from parents and family at around age nine. Um, So young. Yeah, and start to become just that dominant influence. Um, And that can mean really close friend groups um, out to just like anyone that adolescent, the same age as the adolescent. And then, of course, the media and what we've got in terms of social media now um, are both kind of in that in that zone and um, the family is still an influence but just not as strong as um, very early on. Right. That was actually one of my questions is, is social media a culprit? Mm. Um, so I guess the answer is yes. <laughs> well, I mean, we don't have, this is the researcher in me, it's just like it would be really nice to have some pre and post data yeah, <laughs> to compare yeah. before before social media came in and after social media because there's this really nice study based in Fiji um, and because they got um, television a lot later than other countries, the, these researchers actually went in and did some um, qual and quant measures before they got television and then afterwards and followed it up and they found that body dissatisfaction and eating disorders got worse after the introduction of television but television just seems like such a simple media now you know and and it's like well the whole scope of and paradigms have shifted so I don't even know how we could um, control that for a nice neat experiment but um, we do know that social media does strongly influence our adolescents and it it seems like it's coming out in the research now it's kind of almost totally in a different way than traditional media did because with traditional media you know we had all these nice classic studies where we'd bring people into a lab we'd show them images of thin people and then um, immediately afterwards they would have a worse body image or more body dissatisfaction and they would have worse mood or depression Um, and so you know, it was kind of just about the fact that people were seeing these images. There's an automatic process where your mm-hmm. brain compares your own body to what what you're seeing. And then um, if you think that you come off worse, then when the, then the person that you're seeing on, on factors and things that are important to you, then you feel worse about yourself. So it's, it's kind of straightforward. With social media, there's, there is still that process. Um, because you are seeing things, comparing yourself to them. But it all happens at a much faster pace. And there is the additional element of the peer um, validation that needs to be considered. And that is, you know, through seeing how many likes or comments or whatever someone gets, but also how many you get on your own post. I've just um, examined a really great PhD from Ireland that's trying to tease all of that out and look at what is the influence of posting things yourself versus seeing things from other people um, versus seeing the comments and and, um, some of the digital manipulation stuff that adolescents do on their own images before they post them and all of those different parts. um, And they're trying to sort of pull that out a little bit more as well. Um, yeah. So yes, it's in summary, it's it's an influence, but we haven't quite figured it out yet. Yeah, I think one of the things as a parent is, television can be switched on and off, and and you have as a parent you have a certain degree of control over that. Social media, it's just, it's constant, mm. and you know everyone's walking around with a camera stroke computer in their pocket these days. I think it's very tricky and I do want to talk about that a little bit more but I thought it might be interesting to ask you, uh, we're talking about you know body image issues and problems, 
Is there any, do you know of any data in Australia of the percentage, for example, of teenagers that suffer from body image issues? Yeah, so again, um, we don't have great data on this. Other countries put more funding into sort of right. longitudinal tracking of these sorts of things. And even as researchers, when we ask these questions, we're not generally doing it in a way that puts together a nice, neat proportion of people who might be affected. Right. But the closest that we can come is saying that, you know, it's really around 70 to 80% of girls. That's and maybe huge. 60 to 80%, 60 to 70% of boys um, would have some level of wanting to change their appearance. Right. And that's kind of um, the closest estimate that we have. We also know that, um, you know, the Mission Australia survey of young people um, that they do, I think it's every two years, mm-hmm. they ask people what are the issues of greatest personal concern and there's sort of this whole list of things um, that they can put in, you know, pressure at school and stress and all these things and body image has consistently been in the top three for that over the past decade really. So we know that this is something that is concerning to adolescents and we know that it's something that they are um, really aware of as well. And do you think that boys and girls are impacted differently or subject to different pressures? Yeah, and that's why it's really tricky with boys because, um, you know, that out of that 60% of boys, um, 30% will want to make their body bigger mm-hmm. and 30% will want to make their body smaller. And right. so all of the traditional measures that we have were about wanting to make your body smaller because they're all developed for women and now we're in a process of kind of trying to come up with these um, with the ability to even measure what the complexity of that relationship looks like for boys and men. And I, I wouldn't say that we're there yet either, but we're getting a closer picture. Has that got anything to do with the 3D project I mentioned earlier? Yeah, so um, 3D project is the sort of global name for that for that project. And what we've done is develop the Good Form program, and this is um, the first um, body image program for boys that looks at um, trying to improve body image, but also reduce muscle building supplement use, mm. um, because that's one of the main behaviours that boys will turn to quite early on in their um, in their dissatisfaction. Um, and they ha- come with a sort of whole range of other short and medium long-term um, effects. And they're just not well critiqued, I guess, in education or in society. And so we've put together this program in the hope that by talking about the fact that you don't need to use muscle-building supplements, we're also then saying, well, you don't need to look hugely muscular in order to be happy and successful and a good man and all that sort of thing. So with this program, where is it going to be delivered or rolled out? Yeah, so we're mid-RCT. We got a bit interrupted by COVID. Um, oh, yeah. And so this is a school-based program. Right, and, yeah, fantastic. Um, school shut down, so yeah. <laughs> um, we're sort of halfway through. But um, the idea is that it's a school-based program that teachers can implement themselves. Um, and I'm very passionate about, given my education background, about putting together resources that um, allow the experts to do the things that they're the experts at, which is to know exactly what activities might be powerful and efficacious in changing some of those attitudes, but then to leave um, the actual delivery of those activities to the teachers who have expertise in um, what their class needs in terms of, you know, behavioural but also cognitive stuff so that um, there's a bit more flexibility in in terms of the delivery of of the program. And so that hopefully um, will be ready to be launched in 20, 
end of 2021. Oh, great. And yeah. rolled out across schools in Australia. And the aim is to also um, take it overseas as well. The program is based on some previously efficacious programs to improve body image um, for boys and for adolescents. And we're just wanting to show that um, that is the case when we deliver it in a school setting um, and deliver it with teachers as the um, the provider. Yeah, well, that's that's fascinating. I think on two levels. One is that boys' um, bodies change quite dramatically, but at such different times. So I remember watching my son in about yeah nine or ten. I can't remember playing football, and there are some kids out there who are tiny that look like boys, and there are some that look like men. And so there's that, I guess, you know, it makes it tricky if there's a boy that hasn't started his growth spurt comparing himself to the bigger boys. And also the enormous popularity of supplements and protein powders amongst teen boys, which frankly is not necessary in most cases and is probably a waste of money. I think the marketing of those products is just really horrendous. It's almost yeah. going back to the... Um, you know, the 80s for women when it was all like cabbage soup diet and kind yeah. of really harsh um, frameworks around what needed to be done to your body to make it acceptable. And I think yeah. that that's what we're seeing now for men. It's just really sad. Yeah, it is. And well, it's great that there are people like you, Zali, who are out there doing something about it and trying to understand what the issues are. So far, we've been talking mainly about how people perceive their own bodies but I just wanted to touch briefly on you, you, you're interested in the psychosocial, so I guess more on the social side. So apart from how one perceives their own body, I do believe, sadly, that kids are still very critical of each other's bodies. So it's more than just accepting yourself. It's understanding, I think, in the broad sense that everyone comes in different shapes and sizes and the reason I'm saying this is because one of my teenage daughters said to me on the weekend that she's not looking forward to being on the beach with the boys in the summer because they're so rude about girls' bodies, and which I thought was really sad. I thought, oh, are we still, is it still like yep. that? Yeah. What can we do? <laughs> are they being critical online or are they being critical in person? I think what they're doing is gossiping behind uh, people's right. backs saying, yeah. oh, such and such a girl is fat when clearly yeah, she's not, yeah. which I found really upsetting, to be honest, to hear that. Yeah, and that is something that we know does start to influence the way people um, have their own critical self-talk is by watching how people judge others and thinking, mm. well, that must be how I'm being judged. Um, yeah. And that's something that adolescents actually speak a lot about and the qualitative research really does bring that out. I'm not sure that there's much of a solution among teenagers who are already there but yeah. I do think that that's something and we have a body confident mums research program and that's something that we're trying to bring in right back to you know three to five year olds yeah. is starting to really celebrate the diversity of bodies um, and have parents really actively doing that for the first 10 years of kids lives so that they start to um, really get that message of oh yeah it's great that there's lots of different people mm. of all different shapes and sizes and and all of this stuff but the, you, when you think about the adolescents now they've really grown up through the hardcore days of in inverted commas the obesity epidemic being yeah. the biggest you know war that we had to fight and now COVID's come along and finally trumped it but you know they've you know everything that they've experienced has been about 
well, you better not get this thing called, and I don't even like using the word, so I use the O word instead. But, um, you know, when you think about a lot of the public messaging, that's where it's been at. And, and being fat has been pitched as being the worst thing possible. And it's not. You know, everyone has different amounts of yeah. fat. And it shouldn't be a reflection of who you are as a person. But that's yeah. how it's been um, really put together. A combination of media and sort of the public messaging and public health um, stuff that's come out has really yeah. done that to us over the past 10, 15 years. And, and we're hoping to um, push for change in that and to use just a more holistic model because we now have great data that shows that making people feel bad about themselves does not motivate them to improve their health behaviour. Um, and that's something, I mean, you could talk about that for hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a huge issue, isn't it? How can a negative body image impact mental health? I know it's an, an enormous issue, so maybe just give us a few pointers on what you think about that. All that we have from the research is the knowledge that when we do cross-sectional stuff, so we do a survey with a whole bunch of young people, we'll find that people who have um, body dissatisfaction are more likely to also have depression and anxiety. So we know that they coexist and that they are often found together. We don't really know which one predicts the right. other. Uh, it's a little bit hard to pull that out. Because the feelings about the body are so linked to the feelings about the self, we do tend to find that one ends up impacting the other and we tend to find depression and anxiety and you know that in society is considered like a serious mental health problem it's considered really like when we say mental health that's kind of all that they're referring to mm. but body image is very much in there um and it's something that we want to start um, bringing into some of those mental health supports as well right oh that's really interesting in my previous podcast episode with molecular nutritionist dr emma beckett I flagged some changes that I'll be launching in 2021. My podcast will be invigorated with a new name, Vibrant Lives Podcast, and also a fresh new logo. I'm very excited about these changes and do hope that you will like the new look, which I think is more reflective of the content that I'm producing. And now back to my discussion with body image expert, Dr. Zali Yeager. So we've been talking I guess, about some of the problems. I'd like to flip over a bit and look at what we actually can do. What are some positive things that we can do? So for parents, for example, what are some tips you can give us Give us, sorry, on how to create a positive body image in our teenagers? Mm, so caveat, oh, um, full disclosure, my kids are not there yet and I um, you know, was a great parent before I came became a parent, and I'm sure that I'm possibly <laughs> um, a better parent, I'm a better parent of teenagers before mine hit that stage. Um, so, you know, full power to it's a hard job, and it is everyone doing the best that they can. Yeah, but I think that that um, is also the place where my advice comes from because I think that it's really hard to stop them from using social media. It's really hard to have any influence at all over some of the things that are going to be having the greatest impact, um, like teasing and bullying and, yeah. and that thing from peers. Like parents just were powerless in those situations. The place that we can have some impact is around developing self-compassion for adolescents. And the more data that comes out about self-compassion as an approach, the more it just seems to impact more and more a greater variety of, of things 
um, you know, it's good for reducing stress. It's good for improving body image. It's good for reducing depression. It's good for, you know, the more things that they start to say, oh, what if we did self-compassion in this group? Mm -hmm. Then it starts to um, have improvements on a wide range of mental and physical health behaviours and attitudes. So I think that that's something um, that we can actually bring in in adolescence is rather than having a self-critical perfectionist kind of drive, just switching that to, well, I am doing the best that I can. And actually, um, you know, this is something that's really hard for me, but it's also hard for a lot of people. And if we just take a step back. And I just think that reorienting your self-talk to take that approach um, can help in a really wide range of situations so that um, when adolescents come across that teasing situation or seeing those boys harshly judging some girl's body, they can take a self-compassionate approach to internalising that experience or responding to that experience rather than taking the critical approach of, oh, well, if you said that, then I need to do this and, mm. oh, my gosh, that means I need to, you know. And, and so I think that it can be protective across a range of different um, situations. So with self-compassion then, is that something that parents should model to their children, do you think? <laughs> yes, and this is one of the hardest things to do because we're still learning too. I mean, this is yeah. a newer way of, of, um, of doing things, but I think it's something that we can model and model um, really overtly. So actually uh, verbalising the approach that we're taking to a situation as being a self-compassionate approach. There are also a range of resources. Um, Kristen Neff is one of the sort of main um, drivers of this um, movement and she has some great, um, I guess they're meditations, but they're things you could listen to if you weren't sort of lying down or sitting down. Um, So you could listen to one in the car with Mm -hmm. an adolescent. And I think that's sort of a, a, um, it's a a setting and a context that a lot of parents of adolescents report as being successful. Um, So it's something that you could listen to in the car and then sort of have a discussion about afterwards. Um, But those um, recordings have been found to be quite helpful um, across a wide range of, um, you know, anxiety, depression and, and body image concerns. So I, that would be a good place to start. So what was her name again? Um, Kristen Neff. And Kristen I'll Neff. Okay, yeah. I'll put a link in the show notes. That sounds, yeah. that sounds really good. Um, it sounds then like you're having an expert riding along with you in the car. <laughs> so That's can, right, yeah. yeah. On the topic of behaviour that parents can model to their children, Zali had the following to say. I think that um, parents can remember is that you don't have to model appreciation of the way that your body looks all the time. What we're seeing is that there's greater benefit to um, modelling the value of your body functionality. Yes. In terms of, you know, your senses and in terms of what your body lets you do to interact with others and, and do creative things and this wide range of things that this thing we call our body lets us do yeah, um, is actually so much more than just what it looks like. And, and that's something we often forget to model. And I think, though, as we get older, though, you do appreciate that more. I think, mm. oh, wow, isn't it great that I'm nearly 50 and I can go swimming? Yeah. So lucky. Well, the, the data across the um, age spectrum does show that body image only really improves among women when they hit 65. 
<laughs> we have to wait that long. <laughs> yeah, no. But it's but it's sad. It's sad that that happens. But it's also, you know, I think that's at the point where we start to lose some of the functionality and value, maybe what we had. Yeah. Um, so I always say to people, you know, what would your sixty-five-year-old self say to you right now? And she'd probably say, just put your swimmers on and get out to the beach. Yeah. If someone is worried about their son or daughter, where should they start? Who should they go and see? The general path is to say go and see your GP. But I think that, um, you know, in some cases that doesn't pick everyone up. And I think that the best place is actually the Butterfly Foundation has a a helpline. Mm -hmm. um, And I can send through the links there. But they have like a phone number you can ring or there's like a web chat, there's email. Like there's a range of different ways that you can contact them. But they're just really good at um, providing that kind of, you know, advice on where to start because as a parent often you know that there's an issue but you don't know even where to start yeah. to start moving towards, you know, moving towards getting some help and I think that they're, they're really the best place to go for that. Okay. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. So we'll um, put a link to that in the show notes mm-hmm. as well. Zali, if we talk a bit about eating disorders so one of your specialties is preventing eating disorders and I would certainly say this is one of those situations where the prevention is better than the cure from my understanding it's a very very complex issue um, the area of eating disorders so is there an association then between body image and eating disorders yeah and so most of the theoretical models that we have um, show that there's sort of a range of factors, um, you know, comparisons with others that sort of peers, family in the media, um, psychosocial kind of Mm -hmm. um, component that then all of that gets directed through to the level of body dissatisfaction and that then goes through to eating disorders. So um, body dissatisfaction is um, almost a requirement precursor in most cases for an eating disorder. You know, I think prevention is really important because even though they only affect a small proportion and a small number of people in their extreme clinical kind of case, um, they actually have the highest level of mortality of any um, mental health um, condition. And and so, you know, they can be really hard to come back from. Yes. Um, But also, like, they only affect... You know, only a very small number of people are diagnosed, but then there's all of the people, and I like to talk about like an iceberg kind of situation. Right. You know, there's the small number of people who get diagnosed and they would be, you know, on the bit of ice above the water, but then there's a whole range of people that have subclinical um, disordered behaviours and attitudes that never get picked up and never get treated and they can go on then throughout their life um, and, and that can be, you know, have long-term implications as well. Yeah, I mean, it certainly can. I know for women, probably the ones more at the tip of the iceberg, it can impact your fertility later on in life. And, you know, the the impacts can be really profound. Zali, what are some of the factors or interventions that we know about that can help prevent eating disorders from occurring? Oh, this is a real challenge because... Um you know, more so now in the research space in particular, um, there are people saying, like, can we really prevent it given the huge biological influence and mm-hmm. given the fact that, you know, a lot of those psychological, um, you know, levels of perfectionism and things are really hard to shift. Sure. So, um, you know, it's it's not, when we talk about prevention, it's not saying that, you know, each 
case or each person that has an eating disorder could have been prevented if something had been done differently. What we're trying to talk about is um, just reducing the risk across the board um, and kind of trying to create social and um, physical environments where they might be less likely to occur. So um, it's not kind of prevention in terms of like preventing smoking or something a little bit more straightforward. But um, I think that some of the programs um, that we're seeing as being successful um, in a universal kind of context and universal means that we just deliver them to everyone um, are the Dove Confident Me program. And um, so Dove had a self-esteem program that they had out um, right up until sort of 2012, I think. Um, and then my colleague um, from the Centre for Appearance Research started working with them um, and is now working with them across all of their brands to embed a more evidence-based approach. Mm-hmm. And so um, we did a systematic review of all of the classroom-based interventions um, that had been delivered for body image and um, found that one called Happy Being Me was the most um, effective. And that's what um, Dove has then turned into Dove Confident Me. So that's available in a single session in a five session program and it's to be delivered through schools. Um, and that's kind of the one that's showing the most promise in terms of evidence um, for just being delivered in co-ed settings in regular kind of school settings. Once we start getting um, young people who are um, sort of showing some signs of having um, body image concerns and having maybe some disordered eating behaviours, we start to move towards a more targeted intervention approach. Um, And there's a program called The Body Project that has um, been the most um, effective in that um, for that group. And that's um, something that's meant to be delivered more in sort of small group settings um, and in-person kind of facilitation and usually just in all girl or um, all boy groups. And um, that has been brought to Australia and it's starting to be rolled out. Um, so those would be the two sort of things that are widely available, yep. um, generally kind of free and also have research evidence to show that they are effective in those sort of more formal settings. So with the body project, would that be something delivered through the schools in a small groups or it could be I right. think it's NEDC has brought it out. I'll have to look up the organization that is um, rolling it out and it's probably been interrupted because it was probably meant to be happening this year and, and right been able to um, but I will definitely provide a link there on how people could get involved mm-hmm. um, if they wanted to and while we're on uh, programs and things of that nature South Australia's own Taryn Brumford Mm -hmm. is the founder of the Body Image Movement and the director of her impactful documentary called Embrace. And in that documentary, she explored uh, body loathing and her aim, I believe, or one of them was to inspire us to change the way we think and feel about our bodies. And she's been uh, a tireless advocate, I think, of embracing one's body. I understand, Zali, that you evaluated the impact of that film and um, how it improved body image. So can you tell us a little bit about what you found there? Yeah. So um, we did what's called, what is called a cross-sectional evaluation. So we had a questionnaire that was completed by women, adult women above the age of 18 um, who had and had not seen the film. Um, and so then when we looked at the data from the people who had seen the film, they had much higher levels of body appreciation, much lower levels of body shame, 
um, and uh, compared to the women who had not mm-hmm. seen the film. Uh, and then we asked them qualitatively to just describe some of the differences that seeing the film had made in their life. And people were able to describe a wide range of things um, from, you know, personal changes that it had had for them, that it had improved this or stopped them from thinking that um, or doing that um, to really wide reaching things like then they were starting to be a mentor for others and all of that sort of thing. So I really think that it did have impact. And I wanted to do that study because I went to the film, saw the film, you know, laughed, cried, all of the rest with everyone else in the theatre. And I just thought, you know, us researchers have been working away in universities for years to try to develop these programs. And then we have to struggle to push people to do them. And yet here's something that's really engaging and emotive that has, that does that effortlessly. And, and, is able to really bring people along on that journey. And so I'd, I'd love to start making some of the programs that researchers come up with to be that that, that much more um, engaging. But also we're going to work with Taryn on the, the Embrace Kids version yeah. that we're coming up with because everyone said to her, this should be in schools, this should be in schools. And really the Embrace film, its target market is mothers and adult yes. women and, and women who have grown up with this and had these attitudes for a long time. And I don't... I haven't spoken to someone that's taken their teenager along, but I just wonder about the relevance for those young girls, whereas um, we're going to try and develop a, um, a film that's specific to children who are, I think, like 8 to 12 age range to really start to um, change change their attitudes um, before they get too cemented into yeah. kind of internalisation of those societal ideals. Before the age of 65. Yeah, yeah, I think she's done an absolutely incredible job. I mean, the way it all started, I think, with her Instagram post of her her body um, after she'd stopped weightlifting or whatever she used to do, and it went viral and wow, was she onto something? <laughs> she she probably didn't realise how big it was going to become at that point. Zali, you've also written a book. Uh, or co-authored a book called Adolescence and Body Image from Development to Preventing Dissatisfaction. So what was your goal in writing that book? Well, I think first of all, we have to say this is a research text. It's mm-hmm. not a um, oh, okay. really for light, easy reading. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a bedtime story? <laughs> no, like it'll put you to sleep. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's really the goal was to try to bring together a lot of the research in this area because um, – you know, it's a relatively new research space and it's sort of um, been going for around 20, 25 years now and it was starting to get to the point where we had so much different research Mm -hmm. essentially saying different things and, you know, for me I just like to bring things together so that they can be clear and concise and, um, and point to some sort of practical application and implication um, and so the idea was to do that and I co-authored it with um, Lena Ricciardelli who has passed away now but um, she was a, a fierce advocate within the field and um, a wonderful person to work with so I'm, I'm very glad that I've got that sort of piece of research history with mm-hmm. her um, in place but it's not really um, I mean I guess it, the audience is sort of for students at university and right so it's more of an academic as you said text not um not a fun read um so I think it's still available but um it's something that 
um, what I've moved towards now is trying to translate those things from from being a heavy academic text yep. to the sorts of things that people might enjoy reading. Yeah. Um, and that's more in blog form. Um, so, yeah, still trying to bring together research findings and create clarity and, and those sort of um, have those practical um that practical guidance coming from the evidence base. Wonderful, um, yeah. But making it much easier to read. Well, that's really important because, in a sense, if there's a whole lot of scientific research going on and findings about various things, but it's never translated into the public domain, then, you know, what's the point? <laughs> so, yeah. so, in fact, I interviewed um, this week, I interviewed Dr. Emma Beckett and one of her. Um, passions is scientific communication mm. for, for that exact reason she said you know often scientists are stuck away in the lab and yeah. you know she she has uh, she's on a program called a pint of science where they go oh, yeah. into pubs and deliver some interesting research in a, in a friendly way that people can understand so I thought oh, what a brilliant idea yeah well I've just started a research translation organization Oh, um, for that very reason. Mm. Um, it's called the Body Confident Collective and the idea is to get all of the research to the people who can actually use it because it's definitely forgotten and overlooked in terms of the scientific kind of life cycle of things. Um, and we're just, as researchers, we're not really encouraged or rewarded for going out and telling people about the things that we've found. Um, it's more about write that next publication, get yeah. that next brand. Um, Publish so or perish. That's right. And so um, it's just not in there. So we're trying to create an organisation that will make that more possible for body image and then see if that can be a model that might go out to other research areas as well. I think that's an absolutely excellent idea because it is very important that knowledge, credible knowledge, evidence-based knowledge is translated into the, the public arena. Yeah. What are some of the things happening then in the research space that you're in? What we're seeing in terms of interventions is really a move towards the third wave therapies kind of approach, which is more mindfulness and more self-compassion and more appreciation and gratitude and all of those sorts of things, um, which I really um, like. And I think there's a lot of potential for those things to have an impact for things just broader than body image, because one of the problems that we have is we care deeply about body image and we know that it relates to a lot of other things, but to a lot of other people, particularly teachers and parents, it's just another thing that they have yeah. to include. And it's kind of, you know, down on the priority list to literacy and numeracy. Um, and so it's, it's, if we can um, have sort of interventions that are going to have broader outcomes, I think that's going to benefit everyone. Yeah, so are you talking about an intervention that, say, looks at mindfulness that can help in a whole range of things, not just body image? But That's right, yeah. yeah. Oh, that sounds very good and very necessary. I think the world is moving at such a rapid pace all the time that being able to switch off a bit, reflect, be mindful is, is just such an important skill for anyone of any age. Mm, yeah. And so, Zali, who or what inspires you? This is a tough question. Not a question I have to answer very often, um, surprisingly. Um, but I'm actually really inspired by um, the startup and entrepreneurship kind of space. It's not really a person. It's more yeah. um, a group of people. Um, and I just love being around people who are in that area um, 
with their energy um, and particularly some of the stuff that's happening in the femtech kind of world where mm-hmm. you know, sort of finally realised that women um, are like 50% or more of consumers and that we'd like technology to track the things that we want to track as well. Um, I just, I really find that exciting. Oh, that sounds very interesting and a space to watch. So, Zali, the final question that I like to ask all of my guests, if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? Mm. So I know that be kind to yourself um, and take the self-compassionate approach would be the first one, Um, mostly because we know that that has really great outcomes. um, And I guess... Am I allowed to plug my own area? The second to improve your body. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, because we know that people who feel better about their bodies are, are more likely to engage in physical activity and to eat fruits and vegetables and even to do cancer screening and, and put sun cream on and all of that sort of thing because we want to, we love and want to protect our bodies mm. and, and look after them. Um, and so I think that um, even though there's not a whole lot of um, programs out there for adults and this is um something that we're trying to rectify but improving your body image really can help you in those other areas if you're trying to make changes for your health or mental health or physical health and they're not sticking part of the reason might be that you don't appreciate and love your body Um, and so making that kind of change first can then be a real lever to making um and and obtaining some of those other outcomes how how do we do that how do we start <laughs> to love our bodies we watch embrace if we're a woman <laughs> I do often recommend that because I think it is a really great starting point and a good mindset shifter and mm. great at giving a little bit of perspective um and then um there's another program um that we're um, trying to get out for particularly for women um called expand your horizons which really asks you to um it's like a journaling task where you're forced to write for a longer period of time about your appreciation for your body and that can start to create some change. Um, the self-compassion program is known to um, have positive impact and then we're also doing things with the Body Project for adult women um, because often adolescents get all of the interventions. Yeah. Um, you know, there's nothing left for the um, for the women. So um, those are some of the programs that we know are effective, and it's the sort of thing that um, also for, more so for adults. If you just try start to change the sort of social media that you're exposing yourself to, yep. um, that can have a big impact because we know that there is a lot of body positive content now, um, and just b- being exposed to and looking at a greater diversity of of sizes of bodies in your feed can be really helpful for your own body image. There's no need to um, make yourself see thin and young models in order to try and motivate yourself. We've proven now that doesn't work. So um, the best kind of approach is to um, like and follow all the body positive content and, um, and that then can have a nice impact just throughout your daily life without... Yeah having to take too much effort to do it (laughs) yeah well that's great I really like that advice because as you say it's not too difficult to do and Mm. the thought of journaling about you know appreciating your body the thing that springs to mind for me there is that's a really lovely thing to do because we don't often take time to actually think much about 
wonderful things that our body lets us do, whether it's gardening or going for a walk with the dog or, you know, it's nice to stop and think, well, thank you, body, for, mm-hmm. <laughs> for allowing me to have those experiences. Yeah. So, Zali, if someone wants to follow you and what you're doing in your blog, what's the best place for them to do that? I have a lot of different places. Um, you can sign up on my own website, which is zaliega.com. Um, you can follow us on the Body Confident Collective. Um, we have mostly Instagram content. Um, and Body Confident Mums is the place on Instagram where we put out the most frequent content, I guess. Um, and I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn as well for more sort of professional Okay, great. Well, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you. No, thank you. It's been actually interesting to go back through all of this, all of this work and all of this research. So thank you. And that was Dr. Zali Yeager sharing her considerable knowledge about body image. I really hope you found something useful in that discussion with Zali today. If you did, please share the podcast and tell your friends about it. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it will help people find my podcast. So thank you. If you would like to subscribe to my podcast, Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, soon to be Vibrant Lives Podcast, you can subscribe on all good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Spotify Stitcher, Overcast, iHeartRadio and Google Podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Please follow me on Instagram and Facebook and check out my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. You can contact me via my website on the contacts page and please do suggest topics you'd like to learn more about and people you'd like to hear interviewed and I will do my best to deliver that to you. Producing the podcast is a labour of love. It has become my full-time job and I dedicate a lot of time, money and effort towards it. If you enjoy my podcast and would like to support it, I would be so grateful. You can make contributions via my Patreon page or via PayPal, which you will find links to on the donate page on my website. So please check it out. Another way you can support my podcast is by purchasing a book from the book reviews page on my website. If you click on the Amazon link there, at no extra cost to you, I will receive a small commission when you buy a book because I'm an Amazon affiliate. Thank you very much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.